Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj-Assad and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I'll reiterate, Ben and I are automotive journalists and we're pretty good friends. I would say best friends, right, Ben? I am in agreement with your statement. That's good. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask Ben to take this time and plug a couple of the recent publications that he's written for. Ben, can you do that? You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, and at uh, Driving Line and Inside Hook. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, as well as Driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, we've got some cars to talk about this week, which is pretty part of the course right this it's, is this is what we do every week it is what we do <laughs> there's no doubt uh, about that i think um i'm gonna let you take the reins for the first half of our podcast i want to hear about this car that you've been driving so i am driving or have been driving or recently drove the 2022 mini cooper john cooper works convertible sam now, I love Mini Coopers because they're usually a lot of fun, and I used to believe that the John Cooper Works versions of the cars were um, pretty spicy. They were, they were speedy, they were stiff, they were like almost track-ready. But, con- but a convertible version of the car? I'm not so sure. Well, if you think about it, there's, there's some neat stuff about the Mini Convertible because there aren't a lot of four-seat convertibles on the market, period, right? And we've talked about this in the past. And once you start getting to small cars, I think the Mini Cooper is the only compact four-seat convertible out there. Because what else is there? There's the Mini, right? Yeah, I think that's it. That's pretty much it. Uh, there's a convertible version of the 2 Series, I guess. Uh, so that Well, one... I mean, I think those two are closely related by now, no? Well, no, because the Oh, wait, no, we're two... talking... Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's a rear-wheel drive platform. And actually, it's interesting that you bring that up, because I thought they were more closely related than they are. <laughs> but uh, BMW has... Two... So Mini Coopers are built by BMW. Yeah. And BMW has two front-wheel drive platforms that they've been uh, introducing over the last few years. So... The Mini is on something called the UKL1 platform, and that was for the hatch and the convertible starting in 2014 until now. It's it's the same platform, but they made a somewhat larger version of that called UKL2. It has a longer wheelbase, and that's where you see stuff like the 1 Series and the 2 Series. So all the the versions of the 2 Series that aren't the the coupe and the convertible, uh, those are front-wheel drive-based vehicles. Um, the grand, the GT version of the car, X1, X2, all that stuff. And also sprinkled in there, the mini countrymen and the mini clubmen. So the bigger right. minis are on this platform. So there is some family, um, DNA that gets shared and you start to see that in the drivetrains too, right? Because the mini has a two liter turbocharged four cylinder, and this is the most powerful mini Cooper Sammy. So you, you can't get better than this. It's 228 horsepower. You you take that back. What about this special edition GP? Okay, so the GP, <laughs> sorry, the GT, G, which or, one is it? I don't it? know what it's called. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, th- that's that's the really crazy mini that has no back seat and just has a roll cage and whatnot. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess that is the the Ne Plus Ultra uh, mini. Uh, so we won't talk about that. I think that's a very limited edition. I'm not sure if those yeah, were all right. sold like immediately when it was announced. But anyway, this one is two liters, turbocharged, 228 horsepower, and 236 pound-feet of torque. So there's a hatch, there's a hatchback version, like a hardtop version mm-hmm. of the JCW. 
and it makes less power because you need more power for the convertible, which is heavier, right? No, what I'm saying is the big difference between the convertible and the hardtop is transmission. So you can get a six-speed manual in the, I believe it's actually standard, in the hardtop. But if you go for the convertible, you end up with a six-speed automatic? What? An automatic, not a DCT, which I think is found in other Coopers or anything like that? No, and not just... A automatic semi, a six-speed automatic. I'm sorry, that's that's wrong information. I there's a few different versions of this car. The one I had had an eight-speed, so that's okay. not that's not so bad. And I believe it's the ZF eight-speed. It's like the front-wheel drive version of that ZF eight-speed. But okay. again, what a, what a wild what a wild trip you've taken. Yeah, me yeah. On. <laughs> but all that to say, it's automatic only. So if you're a convertible, Mini has decided that you're all about cruising. And you don't really want to be engaged as much as you would if you were driving the hardtop. But that's a weird thing to say because if you were just going to cruise around, why wouldn't you buy like the Cooper S convertible instead of spending so much money on the John Cooper Works? Well, what do you mean by so much money? First of all, I I really like the Cooper S. I think it has just enough power. It's just under 200 horsepower. Yeah. And this is 228. So, I mean, it's not like a massive difference, is it? I mean, I guess it's 10%. In terms of power, in terms of price, the JCW convertible is just under 40 grand. Wow. Yeah, it's $39,750 with destination fee rolled into that. So that means it's more expensive than every other hot hatch on the market. Like, even if you keep the top up, you're paying five grand, six grand more, maybe even, depending on options, than the Veloster N. It's like $10,000 more than a GTI. And it's oh twelve or thirteen thousand more than a Miata, which would be the next convertible and closest in terms of size. So you have to really want this car if you're going to okay. be buying this car. And I just but think I mean, it's, that's that's totally fine, assuming the car is is worth that extra price in well, terms of driving experience, materials. You know, I find it very odd that. You're paying that much money, but Mini has decided to really limit you and be like, no, you can't have the manual. You know, like, why would you do that? It just. I think for a vehicle this niche, that, that, like, a convertible hot hatch um, that costs this much money, they should be willing to spend. They should be willing. To give it, however, the the buyer wants it, right? Yeah, and, and clearly, there's no mechanical reason why it can't happen, right? Like, yeah. It's not like there's some kind of so the regular Cooper Cooper S convertible is thirty one thousand nine hundred dollars, and if you, just, if you just want a base Cooper convertible, it's twenty seven. So like the base, nice. there's a ten thousand dollar price gap between these cars. Yeah, I am going to go on record and say I don't think it's worth it. Um, I did not really enjoy the car the same way that I thought I would. I've liked JCW cars a lot in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, those outfitted with manual transmissions, I thought, I thought they were fun. Uh, I thought they were engaging. This car, though, it's kind of weird. Like, y- y- these days, so many sporty cars have all these amazing exhaust modes programmed into them. And I'm going to talk about exhaust modes because they always do because sound is important to me when it comes to driving a performance car especially when you're talking about a convertible where you can hear the exhaust completely unfettered right so i was like oh there's gonna be all sorts of cool burbling and stuff i don't need like the crazy brap brap and the crackling but like a little bit of burble and just a reminder that i'm driving something special this car has almost none of that sammy even when it's in its most aggressive sport mode like it would occasionally make those kind of sounds but i couldn't reliably replicate them uh downshifting didn't really give me any of that stuff there was no real throttle blip action it was kind of weird experience it just made me feel like i was driving a a much tenser version of the mini without any of the pleasure that comes with the extra power 
that's really disappointing. And I, you know what? I've been charting this trend, I think, for a while when more of the BMW Mini, when, when more of the, when that line was blurred between BMW and Mini with their platforms, hard trains, and it seems like some of the character that I think was present in early Minis um, are is missing completely. I think you used to have a lot of quirkiness, a lot of fun. Um, it felt like like a far more casual experience than a, a BMW in many ways. Yeah, and I don't think that I don't think modern Minis have that anymore. No, I, I would agree with you there. I think the character has shifted. And I want to stress, there's nothing wrong with this car. It's not a bad car, quote-unquote, whatever that means. But at the but price, it's not a Mini. Like, it's just not a you – you're right. You used to pay more for a Mini because it had character. And yeah. now you're paying more for a Mini because it's made by BMW. And and just for the price that, that my model had, I mean, you can add – 17 sure. sorry 7 or 8000 dollars worth of options onto this car so you're starting to look at 50000 dollars and i mean those options can also be totally com- like like unnecessary like those uh, union jack style um mirror caps or yeah or but you know in the case of the in case of the the jcw tops. it gets you navigation um different it did, it's nearly 40 grand and it didn't have navigation oh no, you got a heads up display you got a heated steering wheel all these things that you think you would already have at that price point like at you're already spending thousand dollars you don't have navigation or heated steering wheel man i'm pretty sure we can get like we can get subcompact cars with heated steering wheel of course i mean this is not a value play i think that's kind of what i'm driving at here it, this Jeez. car it's it's something that's priced like at at a high premium. I don't feel the experience reflects that price. I don't feel the styling reflects that price. In terms of driving experience, it does handle very well for a front-wheel drive car. It it is fun in that respect even with the automatic transmission. But if you're trying to do day-to-day stuff, um obviously the convertible version of the Cooper is one of the least practical choices out there. Like the trunk in this car, it's kind of a it's like a like a glove compartment at the rear of the vehicle so like it pops out uh underneath where the top is stowed and you can kind of stuff a few things in there and mini's uh, got this thing where if the top is down or whatnot there's like a you can pop open and lift up the top protector to make it easier to put things inside but it doesn't actually give you more space so it's right. very, very, very small. You're going to be using those rear seats for storage, no question. You probably wouldn't want to put people back there. But uh, it just – it's not it, – it's a kind of car that you buy specifically because you want to have fun with it, specifically because of how it looks and how it makes you feel. I mean there's nothing else about this car where you look at it and you're like, yeah, that fits into my life as a practical choice. You know, it's it, this is a uh, a vehicle that is entirely an affectation, entirely a toy. And I feel it kind of lets you down from that when viewed from that perspective. Okay, hold on. Uh, how does like we we mentioned it's a, it's a little bit it, it lacks a little bit of like the pop and the sportiness of past JCWs. But what about the ride? Is the ride okay? The ride is a little bumpy because the suspension is intense and it can get more intense depending on your drive mode. I didn't find it. I I had talked to some other journalists who were not happy with the ride at all. And I didn't feel that way. I thought it was, maybe I'm more tolerant because of the vehicles that I personally own, Uh, but I didn't find it to be a real problem. But in terms of speed, like, so it's, it's a hundred more horsepower than a base Cooper, right? And about, about 30 or 40, I guess, 40 more than a Cooper S, but Mm -hmm. zero to 60 in this car is 6.3 seconds. So we're, 
that's okay, but your top it's not hot hatch, right? Like it's not. It doesn't feel that doesn't sound like a hot hatch. No, your, your top sports model should be faster than that, especially since you know I would expect that from like the Cooper S, which is actually just over a half second slower. So comparing this to like a Veloster N uh, in a straight line, it really does not compare well. And then of course the Veloster N has the additional perf- like. The look, the noise, the, the handling experience, everything comes together as a total package. What is the package here? What are we looking at as a package? Like it seems like we're really losing everything that made the JCW or the the JCW Coopers interesting. It, it, it just you know, and I want to point out it's also slower by nearly a half second compared to the GTI. So again, that's a very comfortable car uh, that is extremely useful, and they don't make a convertible. So I understand it's not exactly apples to apples, but still. Um, I think that to answer your question, though, I think we've seen a dilution of the Cooper brand, and I think that it has probably hit this particular model the hardest. This this automatic-only, convertible, specialized JCW. Maybe they didn't need to make a convertible version of the JCW. Uh, it's really... This car might exist uh, for that phenomenon that we're so familiar with where someone goes into the dealership and they need to have the most expensive version of whatever car they're looking at. Uh, The X6 was the perfect version of that. Uh, The the M versions of the X6, there's no practical reason to own that car except to have the most expensive version. I suspect the JCW version of the Cooper Convertible fills a similar niche. Okay, and then the other idea is that it's a convertible and it's a faster convertible, not... Not the ultimate fast convertible, but it is, you know, the minis convertible that is in- supposed to be enjoyable to drive. And that's nobody else is offering. Like, as you mentioned earlier, no one else is really offering something like that. Well, the Miata uh, is out there and it's actually it's faster not, zero to 60 by like a half second. It's like as fast as the GTI. It just isn't the look, the practicality or the any of the uh, other. Oh, no, practicality. Quality. I think they're the same. Um, <laughs> the rear seats are there, but they're not going to be used. So you might have a bit more. Maybe a small amount of cargo space advantage in the Mini because of the seats, but the trunk in the Miata is much more usable. So in terms of – if you were comparing these two cars, there's zero question. If you're an enthusiast, you buy the Miata. Yeah. If you have other concerns, if you like the look of the, the Mini more, uh, then yeah, that, that that's a compelling reason to buy it. Um, I just don't see it's, – it's, it's an odd vehicle. It is an odd vehicle in the lineup. And I was I was disappointed. I was excited to drive it and I came away feeling like at that for that amount of money, you know, like for $10,000 less, I would definitely take a Miata. This is going to be a weird question, but um I have found more personality in some of BMW's um applications of this platform, like the X2, I think it's called the M M what is it called? X2 M30 or something? something M35. Like that. Yeah. M35. That was a really enjoyable hot hatch hot hatch-ish kind of car even though it's sure. built as a crossover. Um it was really silly and fun to drive. Yeah, this is not fun to drive in that same way. I mean, it's not terrible to drive. And again, like, you know, it's weird because if it sounds like I'm condemning this car, which is completely fine, but it's just not $40,000 fine. And it's certainly not $50,000 fine. I mean, at those price points, your options really broaden. I think you could probably get a Mustang GT convertible somewhere around the $50,000 mark. Or I'd like to think yeah. you can. <laughs> so once you start, if, if you just want a comfortable convertible, that has a bit of power and a bit of flash, 
a Mustang versus the Mini Cooper JCW, I think there's no real choice there. It's yeah. You'd have to again going back to what I originally said. You have to really want this car to pay this much for it. Can you tell me what you think needs to be improved from the get go? Like, would more power help? Would more, more power would, would help? I think. I think is it that personality that we talked about that was missing? The noises, the like weird messages on the dashboard, or the or the infotainment system. Yeah, that would, that would help. Uh, there's not. It didn't even have like the whole let's motor, let's let's yeah, whatever I stuff. Hate that they've removed that. That's, I can't believe that's gone. It still has the openometer for the top to tell you how many hours the top's been open, okay. which I think is cool. But yeah, like those personality things are just not there anymore. Um, but more power would be nice. But a manual transmission would probably make up for the lack of power because you're doing more while you're driving. Uh, I think that. Okay, so if they if they offered this this product that you were driving at a lower price point of about five thousand dollars, would that help it out? Right, it would it would help it, but you still would have to make peace with the fact that it's not as uh, robust and hooliganish as it's marketed. And that's like, that's a problem to me. Minis are supposed to be first of all they're supposed to be fun, and JCWs are supposed to be kind of wild. And this is neither fun nor wild, right? No. And another weird thing about this car is the top has – the front half of the top has like a uh, – almost an integrated sunroof. So when you when you push the – there's one button for the top yeah. and you have to hold it, right? It's a switch. You hold it and the top, it retra- retracts back over your head and then stops. And if you want yeah. to put the whole top down, you have to push the button again to get the whole top down. This is a nitpick. I don't like that. I need a button that puts the top down. I just hold it and the top goes down. I don't want it to be a two-stage thing. Uh, rarely am I ever going to use a sunroof in a convertible. It's, that's just me. That's my personal use case. But it was a minor annoyance that I had to deal with every single time I drove the car because I spent 90% of my time in this vehicle with the top down. And then the other question I have is when the top is down, is there a visibility issue? Because I remember that it used to like just fold up behind the rear rear seat, so the rear seat headrest, and you still wouldn't be able to see anything behind you, you right? You cannot see behind the vehicle with the top down. It's like <laughs> having a, a wing or something like directly where the rearview mirror is. Again, I'm like 5'7", so I'm not super tall, but I tend to sit low in vehicles. But yeah, it was a big blind spot. I had to use my side mirrors instead of my rearview mirror all the time and that's frustrating in a convertible because i like one of the things i enjoy about convertibles is unfettered visibility you know great sight lines all around it for the most part you get that unless you're like in a camaro and you're super 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 low but Mm -hmm. that was a bit of an annoyance as well interesting and then um how do you feel about this about this future for mini then is there going to be a future for mini now that it's kind of like slowly just turning into more and more bmw-ish and losing that I think there is a future for Mini. I just – we're looking at the most expensive version of the Mini convertible, a vehicle that I think makes way more sense at a lower price point, mm-hmm. uh, just the regular Cooper or the Cooper S. I, I think that that is a fun car that you're spending a decent amount of money on. Uh, I just think that the concept falls apart at the high end. Can I also add, I'm actually quite a fan of the – Cooper, like just the normal Cooper, not the Cooper S, not the Cooper JCW, just the Cooper. I think it's a 1.5 liter three-cylinder engine. You can get that with a manual transmission. It just has 130 horsepower and 162 pound-feet of torque. I actually find that to be a totally acceptable small car with lots of, with, like, with more personality than other vehicles that you might compare it to. And I found that that price point is pretty decent too. But at that point, that's it. Like, that's all you like after that. I don't think the S makes a lot of money. Uh, like, makes a lot of sense for the money or the JCW or the GP or anything like that. It just seems like you're losing 
what you started with. Well, what's wild is if you get the two-door version, sorry, the, two, the hardtop version of the John Cooper Works, it's only 32000 And that's a really mm. big price gap compared to the convertible. And be, with that manual transmission in there, 0 to 60 is under 6 seconds. So not only is there a big price gap, but there's a performance gap as well. Okay. Well, that's a pretty... I mean, that's a more positive statement, I guess. And the all-electric Mini, if you wanted to yeah. buy that... It's kind of a weird medium. It's it's three grand less than the JCW, so it's under thirty thousand. So again, there's just more. I think the options for the hardtop are just more intriguing than the convertible. The convertible, I just don't think it's focused enough to really get a high performance version. I hear you. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this uh, JCW? No, I, I mean, I best my my final words would be: if you're looking at a convertible mini, make sure you drive the base model. If you're if you had the JCW in mind, just to see if there's really that much of a difference to justify the huge pricing gap. And you know what? Speaking of minis, I want to tell you a weird a weird thing that I found. Here we go. Um, I you know you know you you know me. A while ago, I was looking for a uh, winter vehicle um, to share with my wife, who's never driven in the winter before. And I found a couple of these um, all-wheel drive Countrymen's and Pacemans. For reasonable amounts of money with this 1.6 liter turbocharged engine, and on the surface that sounds like a really, a really interesting car. Like it's all-wheel drive, manual transmission for a pavement that's also two-wheel, uh, two doors, and kind of cool. That's the long wagon, right? Yeah. Uh, no, that's the Clubman. The pavement is a two-door version of the Countryman. Oh, okay. It was made for I think three years. Two I understand three what you're years. saying. It's a weird car. And then you start looking at the um, expected uh, reliability of these things and the costs associated with fixing anything on a Countryman or a, or a Paceman, and you, the whole idea goes out the yeah, window. Yeah, I find it very hard to recommend older used minis for exactly that reason. It is so. It is such a shame. Um, this is interesting because the Countryman and the Paceman were built in Austria rather than um, the UK, but still managed the same sort of you know, the same issues, which I think is as soon as you need to repair something, like half the car needs to be taken out, taken apart in order, because that's what compact, you know, it's so compact that, uh, and, and the way it's engineered means that it's just so much time to get to little things to fix. I've also heard that the turbos just don't like being alive. Wow. <laughs> um, I'd like to switch gears and talk about um, the vehicles that I drove this week. I did another compact car comparison um, with two cars that we have reviewed in the podcast before, but at separate times. Now, I think the the one that most people are is familiar with. I drove a new Toyota Corolla. In specific, I drove the XSE model, which costs just under twenty six thousand dollars. It features a four cylinder, a two liter four cylinder engine that makes one hundred and sixty nine horsepower and one hundred fifty one pound feet of torque. It's a somewhat attractive looking car, and it has a really um, user-friendly interior, which is to say it's not complicated. Uh, all the buttons and dials are exactly where you need them to be. Uh, the gauge cluster is easy to read. There's nothing really... Um, I mean, this is the case with all Corollas. There's nothing really stand out about this. Uh, hopefully, the owner experience, the ownership experience over the life of the vehicle is what stands out for most Corollas, right? Yeah. Now, the car I tested it with... And I, you know what? Actually, before I get to that, I need to talk about you know, tiers. I, I know, I don't know if we do a lot of ranking on our podcast, but I think it's time to talk about tiers right now. And you ranking. love ranking things. I kind of do. You, you do know me that way. You know me that way. Um, 
I want to talk about the tiers of compact cars in this in in the market right now because I think for whatever reason, despite the Corolla not being particularly exciting or uh, full of features, with the exception of like a lot of san- standard safety features, there's a there's a reason it's super popular, and I would put that near the top in the top tier of of its class. I think it goes right up there along with the um, Civic, the Elantra. And maybe even the Mazda 3. Yeah, a good I friend think- of mine just actually bought a Corolla without even consulting me. So that tells you where, where, I, li- where I fall in the uh, pyramid of opinion in my friend group. Oh. Um, and then I think b- below that you've got um, the car that I – one of the cars that I j- j- test drove here, which, which is the Nissan Sentra, which I think has kind of like lulled away in the past few generations. Like people just fell out of love with it. Which is crazy because I think growing up, and maybe you recognize this, it used to be a compact sport tuning car, sort of like it had a it had an enthusiast base, right? Yeah, and and this is this is something we've actually talked about in the past as well. Yes. So I'm here to tell you that I think the Sentra can be bumped up into the higher tier of of vehicle right now. Um, it is much better than it ever was and i think that especially when you consider the pricing of this thing the model i had the sr with the cvt (laughs) this cost twenty two thousand dollars man like so my question to you though is you just said those three letters that are going to make me question your comparison here with the corolla what transmission was in the corolla the corolla also has a cvt oh my goodness so there's no there's no 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 way to win here is what you're telling me both cars come with CVTs, yes. And you're, in, this, you're getting... in this battle of the CVT, a transmission that not everyone enjoys driving, which one mm-hmm. came across as least irritating? That's tough. That's a tough question to answer, Ben. I don't know how to tell you. Um, they're both not lovable. They're not lovable. Like, they're not lovable CVTs. I don't okay. know how else to say it. They get the job done. They're extremely fuel efficient. The Corolla, you know what surprised me with fuel efficiency every time I put it on the highway? That CVT knew exactly how to handle um, low, RP- low RPMs and low load kind of cruising. And I thought that was very good for, for Toyota. The Sentra, on the other hand, every other aspect about it has been improved um, th- across the board. It is far more refined. The interior is pretty attractive. The exterior is pretty grown up as well. Um, it has a ton of features. It doesn't have as many features as the Corolla, which I think is probably why it's going to struggle a little bit with the market. Um, and it didn't... I mean, the the power figures are not as impressive as the Corolla. It, it makes 149 horsepower and 146 pound-feet of torque. And, it, and it, I think it averages about one less mile per gallon compared to the Corolla. So with, the, with that in mind, like, what would push you into central country i mean it's the pricing the corolla is the the corolla is the default for so many people that's right to pull people away from that default you've got to have something that is going to really catch attention it's fun to drive it has pretty good steering uh not steering it has pretty good handling the steering is a little bit too light for my liking but uh, once you get over that it handles surprisingly well and like i mentioned it's far more stylish inside and out than the corolla and it's trying it's trying harder then dude the, the models I drove, this is an XSE versus a SR. It was a $4,000 price difference. That's pretty, that, like, that's a good chunk of change, man. That's like 18 to 20% of the total price of the car <laughs> at that point. Exactly, exactly. So 
I'm saying to people that you're going to get a comparable experience to the Corolla um, with a Sentra for cheaper, and I think you're going to get a more attractive vehicle overall. And I think that's really territory that the Sentra hasn't been in for a long, long time. So uh, I want to be clear, though. With the Corolla, you can still get a hatch version, right? But you can't do that with the Sentra. Sentra is sedan only. That's right. There's no like separate model that pretends to be a Sentra hatch? Uh, the maybe the kicks, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, you you're stuck with the sedan. That's you're right. That is a big um, low point, I think, for the Sentra lineup. But I also think that, I mean, we know this. Cars are losing favor, right? And that's why Nissan is focusing so heavily on the uh, on the SUV lineup that they have. Yeah, but it is good though that they put some money and design resources into the. Sentra because for a long time it had lost the plot it was not even close to being competitive yeah and I'll also add that uh, I think you remember last week I had the Elantra and the week before that I had the Civic I think the SR the the sorry the Sentra is still not as competitive as those two vehicles or the Mazda 3 it just I think it can just handle the Corolla and that's it and I think that's an interesting benchmark for Nissan to to compare to um and I also think that the Corolla itself just sometimes struggles a little bit with, with those value-focused uh, com- competitors. I don't know, man, though. Like, when you think about where does the Corolla have to go from here? Does it have to get better? I don't think People so. are still buying it, right? Yeah, I don't think – I think that – I mean, we all know that Toyota is very, very good at the status quo. And as long as they have a vehicle that people are buying, they make almost no changes to it. Like, uh, great examples are the Tundra, which not that many people were buying, but the Tacoma was certainly selling well. It's, it, it was status quo for a decade. Uh, the Forerunner is another great example. They sell like huh. 200,000 units a year or something, maybe even more than that, or 100,000, something. There's some great big number for a vehicle that still has a five-speed automatic transmission. So these are areas where Toyota is not willing to invest resources simply for the sake of change. They need a compelling reason. Uh, they need a vehicle that has fallen out of favor with the the faithful in order for them to pour in any kind of technical uh, development or they'll, they'll do styling changes. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of the cars, they just don't change. And I'll also add, it's interesting to see them, to see them when they do change. It's a slow burn to what their final, their final version is. I think when the RAV4 came out, it was a, an attractive looking car with a somewhat average execution. And then the, the hybrid came out and people were like, oh, that's much better. And then the prime happened and everyone's like, oh, this is what the RAV4 is really all about. Mm. It's very interesting to witness Toyota make that kind of transition. And I'll also add, I think the Corolla makes way more sense when you're getting a hybrid version of it, where it is so fuel efficiency focused that it blows everything else out of the water in that in that grade, in that category. Yeah, I think all of Toyota's best products have their... They're hybrids equipped. But But that is a more expensive version of the car, right? Like that is, you know, you're getting that because you're... And you're already paying more because it's a Toyota too, Yeah, exactly. Yikes. But, um, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about this Tundra that uh, debuted last week? And and I think it's a worthwhile time to talk about it. I mean, if you want to, I don't know a ton about it. I mean, the things that stood out to me about the Tundra. So we're talking about a truck that hadn't changed since I want to say 2007, 2008 when it first came out. And they did do a mild refresh 
in the past. And I mean pretty mild. It was essentially yeah, styling an interior. Uh, but this time they've gone all in, or so they've told us. And we've got a vehicle that is now offering a twin. There's no more V8s. It's no more V8. Twin turbo V6 and a hybrid version of that same engine, I believe. Yes. Uh, and in fact, I think it's important to talk about these engines, which I think are named after sneakers. It's called the iForce and the iForce Max. So they clearly, I think someone from Nike came on over. Um, this iForce Twin Turbo V6 makes 389 horsepower and 479 pound-feet of torque, while the iForce Max, which is the hybrid, I believe, makes 437 horsepower and 583 pound-feet of torque. So it's like 100 more pound-feet of torque, but like 50-ish more horsepower. And it's also telling you that if you want to run with the big dogs in the rest of the pickup truck segment, like uh, a Hemi version of the Ram or the EcoBoost version of the F-150, you're going to have to go hybrid and be happy about that. And that might be a big ask for traditional truck buyers. Yeah, absolutely. There's also some other interesting um, uh, elements to this vehicle. The interior looks pretty impressive, I think. It looks really um, – it looks it – looks, much better than it used to. And I think they have this massive touchscreen infotainment system that I've never seen in a Toyota or a Lexus product before. It is huge. I mean, and that's following on for what Ram, Ram did with their own truck, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and then there's also um, something I'm going to need your, your help uh, describing a little bit with this suspension system that it has. I think they're, they've got a new double wishbone front suspension and a new multi-link rear suspension instead of leaf springs uh, or leaf springs in the back. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can have like a multi-link live axle as well, kind of. So I don't know. I haven't seen the suspension details on the truck. Does it have coils though? Does it specifically say that? Um it says it dispenses with leaf springs for coil springs and adds a lateral control arms. Okay, so yeah. So I mean, it's 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 still a solid rear axle. Yeah. So it's it's not really it's not an independent suspension, but what you're going to get is probably a better comfort inside the truck because leaf springs are great for towing and hauling stuff. Uh what they're not great at is riding around empty and they still stay really really stiff um and you end up kind of bouncing around a little bit. So coil springs are a much better option for day-to-day comfort and since we know most most full-size pickup trucks end up hauling air then that's going to be important to buyers. There's also going to be air suspension and with manual and automatic leveling functions. I don't really know what is a manual leveling function for an air suspension going to be like. Am so I stupid? If, no, if you have a trailer and you want to okay. level out your truck, that's probably what you would do it with. Very cool. And also um, the other thing too is manual control though. more Because you could also do that automatically, right? But what more accurately, it's probably a loading mode where you can drop the rear of the truck to make oh, it easier yeah. to load things in the tailgate. Because we know how tall the size of truck boxes are these days, right? So yeah. anything that gets them down a little bit lower. Um, and then have you seen the exterior design of this truck, Ben? I don't know how else to describe it. They went, they went kind of like ter- Terminator-y with this. It looks kind of scary. Yeah, right? it's a it looks little like much. A, it looks like a transformer. There's a lot going on there. Uh, but, I, you know, this is something that should have happened a long time ago. I mean, yeah. Toyota really tried hard to make a truck that was like everyone else's truck, and very few people bought it. I mean, it was this, mm-hmm. they, they were selling enough for it to be profitable, I'm sure, but they never really made any headway with the average truck buyer. And 
Toyota should have just played to its strengths and been like, hey, this is, you know, we make great hybrids, so here's a hybrid truck. And uh, we make really good high-tech systems that we have in all of our other vehicles. We kind of avoided putting that in the Tundra, so let's do that. And now they're finally kind of doing that. It might be too little too late. Yeah, I think it might be too little too late. I'm worried about that because I think it's exactly what you said. They were trying to keep up with everyone else who've been who has who has an established foothold in their marketplace. If you want to if you want to draw people over, you can't do the same thing as everyone else. I think you should be doing something different. And for Toyota to to, to say um we're going to put a hybrid in there, which isn't new now, right? Like No. It's not Ram kind it, of did it with the 48 volt hybrid system. Yeah. And then Ford did it with their with their trucks. So. And if you if you wait too long, you end up in a situation like Nissan with the Titan, right? Where they made the Titan XD, which no one was doing. It was like this weird truck that was not a ha- not a heavy duty, but uh, kind of a heavy duty, and it had a heavy duty diesel engine in it. And people were just kind of backing away slowly <laughs> and yeah. not really buying into it. It was it was too bad for them. But it was just you know the Titan had been on the market for so long, like more than a decade. And it hadn't changed, and they they never really gave – the truck had no identity. So when it came out with this kind of dramatic about face, I don't think the market was ready for it. Okay. Now, there's one more question I have to ask is, um, is do you think there's going to be a an SUV version of the Tundra? What was the previous – Sequoia. Tundra based. That was a Tundra based SUV. Yeah, and they and still that has s- not been changed in a while. No, long and time. the Sequoia is seriously uncompetitive. Uh, mostly yeah. just the interior and the driving experience. I mean, if you look at large three row SUVs that are based on pickup trucks, the Expedition and the Suburban and all those vehicles have really undergone a transformation over the last five six years, and mm-hmm. they've really upped their game. But the Sequoia has just been. Plunging ahead. Wow, it looks like it's out of 2008. But you know what's weird is the Forerunner has done the same thing. So like this is the, this is this is the old school Toyota where they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. We're just not really going to change it because it's not a priority for us. Right, right. Well, trucks, man. They're. All, I always love looking at how trucks change and how little things actually change in the market. But I'm, I'm really curious to drive this vehicle. I like to see what it's like to drive. Um, I'm not averse to the idea of a hybrid pickup truck. I just I'm not just not sure it's going to help the Tundra, which is a vehicle that you know needed help a long time ago. It needed to it needed to be as aggressive, if not more so, as Detroit when it came to developing interesting models, and that and they just kind of let it go by the wayside. Yeah, I think that's where we're that's where Toyota is struggling right now. I mean, when you look at um, Ram and Ford, they've done some pretty interesting things with their powertrains, with their designs. Um, we've got um, electric versions of the of the F one fifty coming. We've got a hybrid version. We've got an onboard generator. We've got a Raptor, and then on on the Ram side, we've got these V eights. We've got the uh, mild hybrid, the yeah. the Hellcat motor. And then on the even on the Silverado side, you've got some pretty interesting things. I think they have a new Z seventy one package or something like that, or ZR two package. And, and the, you look at Ram, and there was a time when Ram was like yep. a distant number three in the pickup truck segment, and now it's in, in Canada, it's I believe number one or challenging for number one. And in the U.S., I'm pretty sure it's ahead of Silverado sometimes. Like it's yeah, and, and that's an amazing 
yeah, even if they st- – it's no longer a distant number three and it's occasionally challenging for number one. So that's a 20-year change for Ram. Yeah. Started in the early 90s when they completely rethought their pickup program and they managed to carry that momentum until now when it's one of the most sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated pickup options on the market. And they did all of that by not doing the same things that Ford and Chevrolet were doing. They walked their own path. They had the V10. They had the Viper truck on the on the performance side. But they also, you know, they went to coil springs and air springs before everyone else. Yep. They uh, had the light-duty diesel before everyone else. They were in yep. areas that the other automakers were not. And that's something that Toyota has has been afraid to do or just isn't willing to invest in. Well, maybe this is the start. Maybe this is the the the, the generation is the platform that they're going to use to, to make that change happen. Yeah, possibly, yeah. All right, I think... I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good after this conversation about all of our cars. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's that's good for me this week. I, I did want to mention that Sammy and I are going to be taking a week off uh, for the podcast for a variety of reasons. Uh, we will be coming back in the middle of October. With yep. uh, I'm going to be talking about the Alpina XB7, which is a vehicle that really, really surprised me um, in a way completely different from how the Mini surprised me. So I'm excited to talk about that. Sammy, what are you going to be talking about when we come back from our break? Well, I'll actually be able to test a whole bunch of cars um, as part of um, the Canadian Journalists Association's Test Fest. So I'll be able to tell you whatever's the most interesting thing over there. Okay. <laughs> And uh, if you want to hear, if you're waiting for us to come back with a new episode while we take our one-week break and you, you you can't stand not hearing Sammy's sparkling, witty repartee, you can go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com and all of our previous episodes, 250 of them, five years now of solid podcast effort is waiting there for you to discover. You can uh, d- play those episodes right on the website or you can click on any of our links to the many, many podcast services where we're we can be easily found found apple google spotify all sorts of stuff you can amazon we are everywhere so that's an easy way to do that and uh if you do listen to us and you do like it and you want to let those services know leaving any kind of rating or comment is a big help it always helps us get the podcast in front of a larger audience so we would appreciate that um additionally we also have a way for you to give us a little tip through um, a website called Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com uh, slash unnamed automotive podcast. You can give us um, however much you feel like giving us. We appreciate all of the, the donations. Um, it, it helps us keep going. It's, it's a good bit of support, and we really appreciate that. So, uh, Sammy, um, if people wanted to get in touch with us and you know ask us why we're taking a break or ask you a question about the cars you're about to drive, how could they yep. do that? The easiest way, you go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You click on the contact button and you fill out the form. Just like that, uh, a message will land in our inbox. We'll read it and we'll either talk about it on air or we can respond to you um, whenever we get a chance. Additionally, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, H-A, like you're laughing. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care.